agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Heather Cox Richardson, a professor of history at Boston College and creator of the popular and award-winning Letters from an American Substack newsletter. She's also the author of the recently released book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, which we'll be talking about today. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. I, I want to start with what's, a, I think, a pretty bold claim that you start your book off with. And you write that America has been teetering on the brink of authoritarianism. Now, that's a word I want to talk about. You know, I, I'm a social scientist and we like to define our terms. And so I thought this would be a good place to start, given how important this is in your book. So. Let's start there. How how do you define or, or characterize authoritarianism or authoritarian rule as opposed to democratic rule, say? That's a great question and important, I think, to recognize that I'm talking about those terms in American history. You know, that's my specialty. And I, I people always want me to talk about other countries, and I really can't do that any better than anybody on the street. So when I talk about democracy and the concepts of authoritarianism in America, in the United States, and in, in reflection of our history, what I'm talking about is in democracy, I'm talking about the idea that we have a right to be treated equally before the law, and that we have a right to have a say in our government. And those two principles are set out, of course, in the Declaration of Independence. In contrast to that, authoritarianism, and by the way, we can certainly unpack these some more. What I mean by authoritarianism is the idea that some people are better than others. It's okay to treat them differently before the law, and that some people have a right to rule over those others. And that seems like a very basic idea, but in fact, it has caused deep rifts in American history throughout it. And, you know, one of the places it really showed up, for example, is in the 1850s when on the one hand, people like Abraham Lincoln and the, the rising Republican Party talked about the idea of equality before the law and the Declaration of Independence. And elite enslavers talked about the idea that equality was a fantasy cooked up by some people in the founding generation. And that, in fact, some people really were better than others and they really should get the fruits of everybody's labor and they really should be able to direct society as they saw fit. So those are the two strands that I am contrasting in most of my work, actually, but certainly in Democracy Awakening. And I guess in that, some people might hear in that that you're maybe suggesting that people are all essentially equal or the same. And it seems to me there's maybe a distinction to be made here between equal treatment and equal ability to participate. Yet there are some people who, for various various reasons are going to achieve more, get more power, get more money. And you're not arguing, it doesn't sound to me necessarily like for some sort of equality of outcome sort of thing. So, yes, absolutely. But I'm going to grab hold of something you said there, because I think you'll appreciate this as uh, somebody who studies American politics. What you have just identified there was one of the central arguments of the Northwest Ordinance since 1785, um, because the, the real question was, what would happen if, in fact, there were no limits on the upper ability? 
What would happen if there were no limits on the ability of certain people to monopolize resources? And what the same generation that ended up not only writing the Declaration of Independence, but also the Constitution began to argue was that there should be limits on the ability of people at the upper end of the economy to monopolize both resources and then politics, because it would be a very short step between that monopolization of resources to the monopolization of politics to the end of democracy. So those central questions have been there since even before the Constitution. So so in other words, it, it becomes sort of a uh... Uh, a downward spiral, I guess, is that if the rich, the rich get richer, they're able to use their power to their economic power to gain more political power. And then if there aren't some limits put on that, the argument would go, then eventually you you may start with a democracy, but you end with something that is very, very not like a democracy. Is that, is that more or less it? Yes. And that is exactly the argument that the people who wrote the Northwest Ordinance made when they insisted that there should not be enslavement north of the Ohio River. And the reason for that was the idea that that enslavement enabled a few a small group of men to monopolize economic power. And very quickly, they then monopolized uh, political power. And the evidence of that was in Kentucky, which is where so uh, so much of our history developed for the middle of the 19th century in Kentucky, where theoretically everybody had an equal opportunity to, you know, work hard and to rise very quickly. That society, which in the the early years was the Western province of Virginia, got taken over by a very few large slaveholders who then were able to hire lawyers to essentially take the land that belonged to their neighbors who couldn't afford to have decent lawyers. And then they went ahead and wrote laws into the legislature that enabled them to keep that land and so on. So very quickly, the idea was that among the people who were trying to protect democracy, the idea was that you had to make sure that a few people couldn't monopolize everything because that was incompatible with the idea of democracy. And I guess for this to happen, at least to go from a democracy to a sort of authoritarian or authoritarian-ish situation, in a sense, you, you have to, at least at first, Get the people to sort of go along. And and you talk about this in the book. You argue when authoritarian leaders come to power in what, at least at the time, is a democratic society, more often than not, they'll they'll appeal to these groups that were large groups that were formerly powerful, but they're they're frustrated by what they at least perceive to be a loss of power or, or cultural cachet or something like that. And the leader will say, you know, it's not your fault. It's this other sort of group, and then they kind of create their own false history to scapegoat that group or groups. Is that more or less how it often goes? Yes. And that's been established by scholars of totalitarianism and authoritarianism. But again, looking at it through an American lens, and I'm sorry to keep dragging you back to the 19th century, but it's sometimes easier, I think, to see it in periods that are removed from our own. And if you think about the American South in the 1850s, one of the things that really jumped out to observers at the time was that the system of enslavement that develops in the American South after 1830 really privileges a very, very small group of people. It looks like about 1% of that population. So how do you keep people behind that? Well, you convince them, first of all, that somebody is trying to take things away from them. You make sure they don't have access to to media that will suggest otherwise. 
And then you convince them to turn against those that they think are going to be helping their enemies, in this case, the idea of African-Americans taking over society. And that was really very clear the way in which they did that to the point that the large enslavers at the end, for example, of the 1850s going into the 1860 election, not only made sure that Abraham Lincoln was not on the ballot, but also made sure that a really popular book that was written in the late 1850s, which said to poor Southern whites, hey, guys, you're in real trouble here. And it's not the African-Americans. And that's not the word he used that are causing that trouble. It's the rich guys who are retarding our societies, who are retarding our society so they can monopolize all the resources. That book uh, by a guy named H um, Hinton Helper, who's called the um, the uh, the impending crisis. Um, the, that book was banned in the South because elite Southerners did not want white Southerners from reading that book and saying, wait a minute, maybe our problem is not those Northerners that we keep worrying about and not the enslaved people on plantations, but rather maybe the real problem is are the people on top of us who are writing the laws to privilege themselves. And it seems to me that a lot of people listening to this point, if you're even halfway paying attention, are already in their minds starting to draw some parallels between the things you're pointing out from you know, the 19th century to today. And maybe we should make some of those parallels a little bit more explicit, because I think there are a lot of folks, too, who would say, yeah, that was back then and slavery was certainly an evil. and that, But that's a whole different animal than what we're dealing with today or what we may or may not be dealing with today. So, so maybe you could help draw out where you see these parallels. And, and I think acknowledging that, of course, slavery is in many ways an entire is a very different and a horrific thing, but that there are some parallels to be drawn, right? Yes. Uh, but let me let me instead of trying to make direct parallels, which seems to me to to, to put us into some very sticky ground. Um, let's take a look at the moment we're in now which was, of course, what I was trying to do in this book. And the real question is, how did we get here? I mean, if you think about the period from the 1970s back to the end of World War II, it looks really different in a lot of ways than the period from the 1970s to the present. And how did that change happen? And how did we get to a place where somebody like Ronald Reagan, for example, wouldn't stand a chance in today's Republican Party? And that's really a question, right? That's, that's like, how did we get here? And the pattern for how we got to a place where the American population that had widely shared the idea after World War II that government had a role to play in regulating business and providing a basic social safety net like Social Security and promoting infrastructure like the interstate highways and protecting civil rights like it did with Brown versus Board of Education. Those were things that Amer the American people across parties generally agreed on, the vast majority of us. So how do we get from there to a place where all of those things are being challenged and all of those things are being um, promised to, to where the Republican Party, the current day Republican Party is promising to roll all of those things back? And the answer to that looks very much like the same kind of rhetorical pattern that you saw in the 1850s, the idea that if you have a, a consensus, a majority consensus that threatens the ability of a small group of people to monopolize society, either economically or religiously or socially, that how do you break that down? Will you break that down by finding a wedge issue? In both cases, that wedge issue began as race, although in the period since the 19th 
60s, uh, we've added not only race, but also gender to it, and to some degree class. Once you find those wedges, you hammer on those wedges and say to certain voters, you used to really matter. You used to call all the shots, but now you don't. And the reason that you don't is because of those people. And if you can demonize those people and then shut off information that would challenge that argument, pretty soon you've got people participating in what Russian uh, political thinkers call political technology, the idea that they are operating with reaction to a false world that doesn't really exist except in their minds or in, in our era in social media, but it's one that will enable you to convince them to give up their democracy as, say, the people in uh, Hungary did under a similar regime by Viktor Orban, who has taken uh, what was a, a, a thriving democracy and turned it into an authoritarian government. I mean, it's a really, as a, as a scholar, if you step back and look at it, it's a really interesting progression. As a human being who's experiencing it, it's it's sort of gobsmacking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly agree with that. But, but I wonder, maybe I turn it on its head a little bit, this this kind of post-World War II uh, liberal consensus or New Deal consensus, it's sometimes been called. I, I know there are some people would say, well, that's actually the anomaly. And we had this weird golden period, well, golden, as, as long as you were a, a white male, I suppose, right, that there are a whole bunch of other issues there. But but that this idea that we would largely agree on things and not engage in scapegoating was just a weird artifact of our emerging from World War II as the one major, you know, society that wasn't horrifically damaged. And, and, and so this was bound to change through international competition, globalization, technology, and so forth. And that and that looking to that past as a roadmap or a guide is going to be fundamentally misguided because that period itself was an aberration. And I wanted to get your, your, your thoughts on that as an historian, particularly. Well, so I love that question because I actually think that's not an unreasonable argument to make. And I love these sorts of arguments. So I don't think it's an unreasonable argument to make because the post-World War II period had many ways in which it was unique, of course. but. In the United States, I don't think you can say that that concept was an aberration for this reason. Because, first of all, the very concept that everybody should be equal, even though it was never even imagined in the founding period as something that would include women, for example, or people of color or black Americans, the very concept of saying, wait a minute, you can organize a government on a different system than tradition or than religion or than nationalism was itself absolutely remarkable. And these were not, I want to make the distinction, these are not like gods. These were ordinary people who became extraordinary in our memories, but ordinary people saying, wait a minute, it doesn't have to be the way it's been before. So that itself was extraordinary. But then, of course, I'm sorry to drag you back to the 1850s again, but there's another example where the Republican Party under Abraham Lincoln, who's the first person to articulate a vision for that party. He's not an organizer, by the way. He, he, he's, he comes in a few years after the organization, but he's the one who articulates a vision. And he's really clear. If you look through virtually any of his speeches, but certainly the Lincoln-Douglas debates, again and again and again, he talks about the Declaration of Independence. And when he talks about the Declaration of Independence, 
He says, you know, if we're really going to start to say that black people aren't included in this and they can never be included in this, where is that going to stop? Like, does that mean, you know, where where do you come down and say, okay, it's everybody's equal except these people? And he has a number of writings about this where he says, you know, be really careful here because it's only a question of time till you're on the wrong side of that. And in fact, when people like Lincoln are thinking those concepts, they're not just thinking about Black Americans. They're also thinking about Irish Americans in Massachusetts and New York who are beginning to be singled out by state law as a, as a lesser category of people. And similarly, Indigenous Americans and Chinese people in California, who by law, after, um, after California begins to organize and becomes a state in 1850, are literally categorized differently than white Americans. Mexican Americans, by the way, are, this, are similarly discriminated against in California law. So here's a period when the only people who can vote are white men. And they're white men, usually white men of property. And nonetheless, Lincoln manages, Lincoln and people like him manage to say, wait a minute, it's not just about black people or Chinese people or Irish people or indigenous Americans or Mexicans coming, you know, coming into the, the new California state. It's or who had been there actually beforehand. It's about whether or not all of us are equal, because if you can turn against those people, you can turn against me. And it works. Then again, we do the same thing in the 1890s and the and the early aughts, the early 19 aughts, when the the we get a similar rise of a group of people, people like Andrew Carnegie, who begin to say, wait a minute, it's really important for people like us to run society because we're the only ones really who know how to use money really efficiently and use the market economy really efficiently. So we should have more power and we'll do what's right for all of the rest of you. Similarly, there, after the turn of the century, People from all parties come together and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what democracy is supposed to be about, even in a period in which the, the country is mired in lynching and in anti-Black rhetoric and anti-Black action, and also in one of the highest periods of immigration into American society. People come together, and by 1912, all three major candidates who are running that year are all progressives. So I think you can make as strong an argument that our history supports the idea of consensus and a consensus that increasingly expands access to democracy, I mean, expands access to democracy, as you can say that what happened after World War II was an aberration. Huh. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting way. I, I hadn't thought about that. I'm glad I asked you that question. Uh, well, so let's move it a little closer to the present. We, in this, this post-World War II period, uh, starting in the late 60s, uh, early 70s, we start to see some significant economic problems. We see groups that are, I think, rightly demanding that the promise of democracy be you know, honored in their names, whether it's women or, or minorities and so forth. And, and, and there's, some, there's some real disquiet, some really discomfort with this idea. And some, I think, fairly savvy politicians recognize that they can use this as a way to attempt to gain power. And this is maybe where we can talk about uh, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. And I was hoping you kind of kind of explain how this fits into this overall picture that we're talking about. Of course. Um, and then if we have time, I'd love to, to tell you about a new idea I'm playing with. It's actually not in this book, but I think is interesting. Um, so, so I think you can make an argument that one of the things that we've been grappling with 
really since Brown versus Board of Education. You could even perhaps push that backward to 1947 when um, uh, Truman is really beginning to push desegregation of the military um, and, and maybe even a little bit earlier. But anyway, from the late 40s into the early 50s, we certainly have entered a period in which we were grappling with the idea of civil rights, with the idea that, in fact, in that period, men largely who had fought in World War II and who were Hispanic or Black or um, Asian American said, wait a minute, hang on a second. We just fought against fascism and the idea of racial categories in Europe and Asia. What are we doing here at home when we come home, for example, and get attacked or lynched because we are we have a different color skin underneath this army uniform? So from the beginning then of the return and from the beginning of World War II, that was always on the table. But one of the things that matters with the Southern strategy is in 1964, we get the Civil Rights Act. And then in 1965, we get the Voting Rights Act. That Voting Rights Act is enormously important because it begins the process of opening up protection for Black voters, but also Hispanic voters and, and minority voters in American society. So why is that particular date so important? Before that, in 1964, of course, after the passage of the, of the Civil Rights Act, after a number of atrocities in the midst of a period when three civil rights workers who had been registering people to vote disappear in the Freedom Summer in Mississippi, Lyndon Johnson, who's a Democrat, gets pushed through Congress the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And one of the things that that Civil Rights Act was supposed to do was to protect the right of people to vote, which was already on the books. There wasn't, this wasn't supposed to be a big change. It was supposed to go back to making sure that things that were already on the books got enforced. And, and similarly, there had been the 1957 Act that tried to do the same thing. So after 64, after that happens in 64, if you remember that election, and I'm sure you do, Nelson Rockefeller, who was supposed to be the front runner for the Republican Party, crashes and burns over an extramarital affair. And so it opens the way for Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater to become the presidential nominee in 1964. Now, why did I just make such a big deal about that? Goldwater has risen to real prominence on the idea of the, this book that's published over his name, although he didn't write it, called The Conscience of a Conservative. And in that, he explicitly says that he believes federal protection of civil rights is unconstitutional and makes it very clear that he is stands behind states' rights. And what that does is it enables the Democrats who had begun to break off from the Democratic Party uh, during the Truman years and the desegregation of the military during the Truman years, it offers to give them a political home. And you see really dramatically in the nomination of Goldwater at the Cow Palace in California that year, 64, the people who put him over the top is the delegation from South Carolina. They made they did that on purpose. They waited till South Carolina, which is, of course, the home of the of the uh, Confederacy, um, the place that, that first seceded from the Union. They did that so that they could be the ones to endorse him uh, in the, the number of votes he needed to go over the top. And he, this is when he made the speech about extremism being, being no vice in, in the pursuit of liberty. He does that in the Freedom Summer of 64. And he actively courts Strom Thurmond, who had been uh, really the, one of the real leaders of the Dixiecrat Party, one of the people who had led what I think is still the longest filibuster in American history against the Civil Rights Act of 1957. He, uh, 
convinces Strom Thurmond to switch to, to, to join him in 64. Now, what that means, of course, is that uh, uh, Barry Goldwater crashes and burns in 64. He doesn't go anywhere with that candidacy. But it does make it very clear that when Nixon runs in 68, there is this group of disaffected Democrats who feel they have to leave the Republic, the Democratic Party after the voting rights of 1965 and after the Democrats get on board with the idea of enrolling black voters, they leave the Democratic Party and they don't, they're homeless. They could go to their own party as some of them do. But Nixon opens the door for them to join him. He actually talks to Strom Thurmond, makes it clear he will not push federal enforcement of desegregation. And Strom Thurmond agrees to stay behind Nixon in 68, and the Republican Party begins to absorb the, the racist Southern Democrats into the party in 68. Now, of course, Nixon has his own troubles in 72, and in 74, he resigns from office. 76, it's almost a given that a Democrat is going to go into office. But, but Carter is a really interesting Democrat to go there because Carter, of course, grows up in a town where there's 27 families and 25 of them are black. Carter's family and, and only one other family are white in that town. And he represents a new America that really is going to try and put its weight behind equality. And in the 70s, you actually start to see the effects of LBJ's Great Society really coming to the fore and, and reducing the gap between, uh, between black poverty and white poverty, reducing that gap pretty dramatically in the early 1970s. So then all of this to say when Reagan springs onto the scene in 1980 as a candidate for the presidency, it's no accident that he, he gives a really important campaign speech at the Neshoba County Fair, which is really close to where those three civil rights workers disappeared in the summer of 1964 and were later found, of course, um, it, uh, having been murdered and buried in an earthen dam. And he says at that Neshoba County Fair, I believe in states' rights. And that's a signal to the former Democrats, the racist wing of the Dem of the Democrats, that they are welcome in the Republican Party. And that tail began to wag the dog after that period. So that's sort of a long way to say it's it was a, a switch based on race, but it's also a really important switch that comes after the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because in many ways, I think what we have seen since then is both the Democrats and the Republicans figuring out how on earth they're going to grapple with the idea that people of color and black Americans are going to get to have an equal say in their governance, the way they were promised in the Declaration of Independence. And the parties have both had to grapple with it. And at the end of the day, they've taken very different directions in the way they answered it. When I've read uh, comments, interviews from what various figures, whether it be Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, everyone in between, uh, on this issue of states' rights and federalism, they most mostly they insist up and down that this is a principled stance. I mean, Barry Goldwater had a very, I think, clear and to some people, even some constitutional scholars, compelling argument about Congress abusing its commerce authority to enact this legislation it couldn't. And and so, I wonder, do you think that this is at all? These are at all principled arguments that just happen to have some unfortunate uh, uh, consequences? Or do you think that from the beginning, 
that in most cases, this was just political calculation that they wrapped up and found some sort of rationalization for? Okay, first, let's throw out Goldwater's comment about commerce, because one of his best friends was Phelps, right? And he, he had huge issues with the idea that he couldn't treat his workers however he wanted. He literally took them out and dumped them out in a desert at one point. That being said, that doesn't negate the legitimacy of that question, because this, it seems to me, is a central question in our, in our system, is the relationship between the, the national government and the state governments. And that's a really complicated dance. And it's one that I don't feel I've got an easy answer to, because for a country that's this big, I don't think you can have a, a national government that operates with a strong hand entirely simply because we're so big. I mean, I've, I've, I've lived in many places all over this country, and what is an excellent living in Oklahoma it has you homeless in Boston. So, so I don't think that, that it is possible in our era to say, oh, we should do all this or, oh, we should do all that. But the central question of federalism, which is what you're talking about, it seems to me the question you're trying to answer is one that has kept me up nights for, for years now, ever since I really did a deep dive into Scalia's decisions, um, uh, uh, Justice Scalia's decisions, Antonin Scalia's decisions, because he makes a case for originalism. And originalism, as it is couched in places like that, really focus on the idea that, that states' rights is the most powerful object in a democracy. And the reason for that is the idea that if you focus on the federal government, people there are uh, unaware of what's happening in the states. They tend to privilege a few wealthy people. And then what really matters is what's happening at the state level. That's the argument. Now, that argument, of course, comes out of Andrew Jackson and his deputy and later president on his own, Martin Van Buren. And the problem there is that both Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson make that argument in part because they're terrified that the federal government has been taken over in Jackson's case by bankers that he thinks are hostile to the South, which is where he's from. And in Martin Van Buren's case, by people who are not part of his political faction. So from the beginning, there is within that argument, the idea that the federal government is somehow alien and it's alien in their cases, both to their economic, uh, interests, but also to their interests in having a power base. So one of the things that that I've actually, I, I should have warned you, I've spent the last several months reading a great deal of Jackson and Martin Van Buren to see if I could get to the very center of this. Because if you ask people this question, they say, well, well, it was always a smokescreen and it was always about race. And certainly Andrew Jackson uses it that way. He uses that argument to take the lands of the indigenous Americans who are in the American Southeast. Uh, he, he really uh, uses that argument to say that it makes sense to take all their land because under popular sovereignty, which is the language that is used to, to give a theory to that argument, what really matters is how people vote at the local level. And, and obviously for him, there's very much a racial component of it. And the uh, the the popular sovereignty as it is going to exist until the, the the Civil War in 1860 is always going to spread enslavement. It is always going to take indigenous lands. So there is definitely a racial component to it. And yet the idea of having local government where people actually get to have a say remains, I think, an important check on the idea of having everything centralized. 
So, so here's where I've come out with it, and, and certainly your readers could argue with me, and you could argue with me, because I'm still thinking this one through. The problem with insisting on state power is that in order to insist on state power, you must also insist that every adult in your state has an unobstructed right to vote. Because unless you are including everybody in that construction, that it's local votes and all that, then you're actually simply privileging the small group of people who are allowed to vote. And of course, in the United States, states determine who can vote in those states. So I think there is an inherent problem in that construction that we have yet to grapple with fully. And of course, that's what the 14th Amendment was designed to do. And then the 15th Amendment to say, okay, you can do whatever you want in your states, but you've got to let everyone vote. And then, of course, it turned out very quickly that that's not the way things played out. So a convoluted long way to say a central question in American history and one to which I have a lot of ideas, but not yet an answer that I would call definitive. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of where I am, because I find I find certain elements of that, at least intellectually, theoretically compelling. But but I think you make a really good point about the, the not just the potential for abuse, but I think the calculation that that this is this is part of it. And there is kind of a built in dog whistle. Sometimes it's a lot less subtle than a dog whistle there. Um, I, I want to move us a little closer toward the present, because it seems to me that. Tracking this movement toward this sort of authoritarian-ish moment, uh, Ronald Reagan is an interesting character here because when I think of a Barry Goldwater, I think of sort of a a, a strident, semi-nut kind of guy and Nixon, this sort of dour kind of just evil-ish kind of, yeah, the, the whole Nixon vibe, I guess. But Ronald Reagan feels different, right? Authoritarians aren't supposed to be happy warriors, right? Morning in America type of folks. I mean – I feel like there was some sort of a shift with Ronald Reagan, I guess, maybe making this sort of move more palatable than it was under uh, under uh, Goldwater. Well, not that he got a chance to be president, but under under Nixon. Do you do you sense any of that? And I am I on track here, do you think? Sure. I mean, everybody recognizes Reagan's power at speaking and his geniality. I mean, remember after he was assassinated? And he came out with the line, honey, I forgot to duck. I mean, that was just so, it was one of those great lines in American history. But really, you see the rise of politician as celebrity as early as Eisenhower. His people very deliberately packaged him that way, if you remember the ticker tape parades. But certainly Nixon. I mean, it was really quite deliberate that, that you know, who packages Nixon is Roger Ailes, who goes on to be one of the important people in the construction of the Fox News Channel. The, and, and they talk about this when they're in, in 68, when Nixon is running, they talk about packaging him and making him look interesting to, to voters. So they react to him on an emotional level as opposed to an intellectual level. And they're really clear about this. So one of the things that Reagan does, and I think the reason that people identify him as a dangerous figure, and one of the reasons he really worried me very early on is because he presented an image and it was a compelling image of a world that was really based in fantasy. And this is one of the things you see when he's beginning to rise to power as governor of California is journalists don't take him seriously because he's, he's not telling the truth. You know, one of the great examples of that was the fact that he always talked about how many lives he saved as a lifeguard. And all the other people who worked on the same beach were like, you know, nobody drowns on our watch. So how are you pulling all these people out of the water? And the, 
the journalists laughed at it, but but it created a compelling story and people gravitated toward that story. And so you see in Reagan this storyteller who presents a world that even at the time wasn't true. So, for example, he talked about Carter having cut the military. Well, that wasn't actually true. Carter had increased the military budget. He'd increased it according to inflation. But that's not what people believed coming out of um, of listening to a Reagan speech. Another example of Carter saying, you know, giving all the facts of, of a, a situation and Reagan saying, oh, there you go again. That's what everybody remembers. Carter's facts that day were actually accurate. Similarly, Carter calling him out for appearing at the Neshoba Fair and journalists getting on board Reagan's argument that Carter was simply being unfair and he was unfairly accusing Reagan of appealing to the interests of a group of racists, even though his own Mississippi um, uh, party handler uh, in who, who convinced him to go to Neshoba said that's why he was doing it, was to pick up those racist Southern Democrats. So Reagan started, not started, but really perfected what Nixon had begun and created this image that that really was not what was happening in the country. And the place this really showed up for me was when Mondale runs in 84. You know, I, I think many of us, and perhaps I'm being unfair, but but remember Mondale as maybe not the world's most colorful character. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm being, being a little cautious here, but if you actually read Mondale's platform in 84, it is virtually identical to Eisenhower's. And yet Reagan portrays him as being this crazy leftist, right? And that that really jumps out when you think of how far the party had gone, that already by 84, Eisenhower's platform was one that Reagan was characterizing as being dangerously on the left. And, you know, I, I think obviously there are clear parallels that people are drawing uh, and, and you describing Reagan uh, to, to Donald Trump. Right. I, I think in both in both instances, both men understood the power uh, of a good story and a good narrative to just blow the facts away. But it seems to me one important difference is that. Ronald Reagan's story, at least on the surface, right, was an uh, was an optimistic, was it was a positive story. Whereas Donald Trump's is a, is is a rage and resentment filled. It's a much darker story than a Ronald Reagan's story. It seems to me. It does, and I actually would say they're very different people in a lot of ways. That idea of basing politics on narrative is not really new to either of them. Although Reagan really perfects it, and Trump takes it to a new level, but. But Ronald Reagan was a politician, and he was a politician with beliefs. He's one of the early people to fund um, William F. Buckley Jr.'s National Review uh, from, the, from the, the beginning. He has an ideology. I don't think that, and it's an ideology that he does see in a sunny way, and remember, of course, that he's going to be running for office just after Star Wars becomes the mega hit of 1977, which is the little guys taking on the empire, right? So he's got that going for him. Trump fascinates me because he seems to me to be a reflection of a certain group of the American people. So he always struck me as a mirror. You know, Reagan was an ideologue who had a vision that might not have been based in reality, but it was a, it, it, at, least, it, at least a principled vision for him. I don't think 
the former President Trump has a principled vision of anything except himself, quite literally. And what he did when he ran for office was to mirror the people that that Reagan vision had gone on to create. You know, the racists, the sexists, the haters, the, the people who felt they had been left behind in the economy since the 1980s, that economy that people like Reagan began to put into place and felt bitter resentment for it. And it was not an optimistic view at all. It was a view of revenge. And now, of course, uh, we know that Trump launched his 2024 campaign with a speech about retribution, not the idea that we were all going to move forward and try and make things better for people, but that we were going to punish people. And that, I have to say, is virtually unheard of in American history. I can think of one somewhat minor politician from the Midwest who made noises like that in the 1890s, but it's not a name that anybody's heard of. The idea that somebody is a front runner for a major uh, political party presidential nomination who is essentially talking about using the government to hurt people is is unique. And 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 more frightening, I, w- I would argue, if that if that actually if he actually is a mirror of what any significant portion of the American public feels is within bounds, I guess. That's the scary, even scarier to me than the actuality of Donald Trump as as president is is the, the circumstances that would that would lead to that being possible. Well, it, it hasn't been a short road for sure. And people who look at Trump as if he came out of nowhere are missing the idea that you set up at the beginning of this talk that we have created in America an underclass that bitterly resents what they feel is their lack of power in the current moment. They feel they've been left behind and they no longer believe in American democracy. What they really want is a strong man to take revenge on their enemies. And that, you know, there there are many ways in which historians will not predict the future uh, because, you know, it, it, it doesn't really repeat itself. It rhymes in all the things you've heard. But we do know that when a strong man rises to power, it never goes well for anyone. You know, even maybe in the short term, it looks pretty good for a certain group of people. In the long term, the entire society loses. And that is an axiom that has never been contradicted. So to watch this and to recognize that they are willing to take that on so long as somebody gets hurt as badly or worse than they feel they have been is, I think, a failure not only on their part to understand the concepts of democracy, but also in our society for the last 40 years that we have permitted it to get to this point. I'm always, I guess, skeptical of, I'm not saying you're doing this, I don't think you are, when people sort of blame the public and the, you know, the, the politics we get is the politics we deserve. I'm, I'm mangling H.L. Mencken here. But I, I feel that maybe especially we need to, to kind of pull out uh, fellow politicians or enablers, if you will, and, and the media, because it seems to me there were a number of instances where if uh, other prominent Republicans had banded together or the media, the, the conservative media decided this is beyond the pale, uh, that Donald Trump would have ended up falling short and never having reached the presidency. And yet but we find that so many people essentially just went along, oftentimes with arguments about, well, you know, I, I did, 
I'll be one of the adults in the room, and therefore I can I can use this I can channel right this populist rage that brought him into power for good ends. And I wanted to get you know your thoughts on on maybe the reasoning behind these people. Were they just fooling themselves? Do you think, or or what do you think is going on here? Well, remember you're talking about a whole spectrum of people. So sure, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah that's fair. The quotes that I think you just pulled was from sorry. This one of the quotations I think you just pulled was from somebody who was uh, in the White House and was uh, an official in the White House, but not a high up official in the White House and stayed with the, the president, uh, the former president for a while, uh, writing op eds, for example, under the name Anonymous. And finally, now is a very, very strong voice in the Never Trump movement for 2024. They're different, I think, um, than people like former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And there's a really important distinction to be made there that people like, and, and, and this is a, a different one than the person I'm just calling out, but people like uh, one of the, the people who stood up and talked about uh, Trump publicly, Cassidy Hutchinson, who, who was very clear about the danger she would be in if she fell out of that Trump family. And so the people like her, the staffers, I have more sympathy for. Then I do people like the senators who refused to convict uh, Trump on either occasion, his first in, uh, impeachment trial, where we have quotations from Ted Cruz saying that there wasn't a single senator who didn't believe that, in fact, he had operated as a, with a quid pro quo when he asked Volodymyr Zelensky to smear Hunter Biden and, by extension, Joe Biden before the 2020 election. Or in the second impeachment, when the, the role that the president had played at the very least in not stopping his supporters from storming the U.S. Capitol was, was there for all to see. And you can see that they recognized that by the fact McConnell gave the speech immediately after that, saying it's up to the courts now to take care of this, even though now, of course, a number of Republicans are arguing that the courts have no rule to do that because uh, Trump was acquitted after his second impeachment, which some people are trying to expunge from the record. So there's a difference between the staffers and the senators, especially. And as you know, in this book, I, I call out the Senate again and again and again, because the way that the uh, framers of the Constitution operated, they believed that the senators would be solicitous enough of their own power that they would never permit the rise of a tyrant. And the number of times that senators could have reined Trump in and refused to do so. So that raises the question, why? And you have to look at the fact that one of the few things that Trump did manage to do was to enact the Trump tax cuts of 2017, which were a dramatic boon to people of wealth and to corporations. And throughout the, his tenure, the, the things he did were things that enabled people at the top of our economy to continue to amass power. Again, the people who could have stopped that were the senators, the Republican senators, and for the most part, they refused to do so. And honestly, I find that absolutely unconscionable. Well, I, I guess I, I, I'm not surprised in a sense because it seems to me we've gone from at least at the outset a system in which the framers had some idea of reasonable institutional rivalry to a, a sense where that's really not that's really not a thing anymore. Where we're operating in almost kind of a parliamentaryish sort of system where Republicans stick together, and it's this no idea of the the you know the the power of the Senate. No, it's it's the party and the other. And I think that's a very different set of incentives than maybe the the framers were envisioning. 
I think that's right. Of course, they had no concept of the idea of the rise of parties. They called them factions. And people like Madison and Federalist Number 10 said, hey, you don't need to worry about parties because it's such a big country. And of course, he was only talking about the original 13 states that nobody will ever be able to, to come up with large, large parties, large factions that will end up warring with each other. Well, of course, within his own lifetime, we had the rise of parties and the extraordinary partisanship that we see today as an outgrowth of that, which I think you're right, overrides the institutions. That being said, um, the, the importance of our institutions and the importance of, of retaining those guardrails really matters. And the fact that people have been willing to overthrow those systems in many ways to do things like garner more money for their own political parties going into elections is deeply problematic. I mean, Citizens United in 2013, which really changed the way we funded um, we funded our campaigns, was a tremendous problem and continues to be a tremendous problem because, it, you know, more and more things come down to how much money a party can garner. And the way you get money is by making sure people who have money have a system that is weighted in their favor. And another thing that, that occurs to me about Donald Trump, and I think this is true for, for most uh, authoritarian or would-be authoritarian leaders, is they, they are able to build up a, a sort of a bubble, this cult of personality, but also this sort of sense that there is no possible criticism of them that can be accurate or fair. I mean, the, the number of times Donald Trump uses the word unfair seems almost unprecedented. And, and what it seems to me to do is it insulates them from any sort of critique. And once you're in that bubble, in that family, then you are you effectively lock yourself out of any any different narratives, which is an incredibly powerful tool for that authoritarian leader. It is. And it's a tool that scholars of totalitarianism and authoritarianism have identi identified really since World War II when they began to dive into this concept of sort of a cult of personality. But there's a really interesting book from 1951 by Eric Hoffer, who was a longshoreman in San Francisco, who wrote this book called True Believers. And one of the things he says in it that really hit home for me was the idea that once people had begun to believe in a strong man, had begun to believe that that person could lead them to a position in which they felt the authority that they used to have before those others took it away, was that once you had bought into that, in fact, the worse your person behaved, the tighter you clung. Because once you have gone down the path of believing, once you've gone down to saying, oh yeah, he's right, even it turns out, even when it turns out he's wrong, that in order to walk that back, you have to accept that you have made mistakes the whole way along the line. And the worse that person gets, especially the worse that person gets in, in his abuse of a, a, a weaker group of people, the tighter you cling to him. So in fact, the worse that person behaves, the more you care about being part of that identity. And it's extremely hard to leave because it has become a part of your identity. And you see that, I think, with those who now just simply say, I don't care what you say to me about Trump. I don't care what's been proven against him. I'm one of the true believers. And, you know, I, I always say this reminds me of Narcissa in Harry Potter. The worse that Voldemort treats her family and treats her and treats her, the tighter she clings, because if she has to start walking that back, she's going to lose who she herself has become. 
And she seems to me to be a, a popular version of that same phenomenon that people like Eric Hoffer identify. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting analogy. Uh, now, there are some people who would say, well, yeah, Donald Trump is is a, a horrific figure who are very much anti-Trumpers. But they'll say, now, if you think about the rise of Donald Trump, they'll at least want to uh, give some of the blame to elites, often liberal elites, who essentially have pushed a level of economic and cultural change at a pace that maybe uh, uh, those elites were comfortable. They had the resources and, and, and the uh, ability to handle them, but they did not realize that a large number of Americans weren't so fortunately situated. And so therefore, in a sense, the liberal elite, if you will, has brought this on themselves. I mean, it was a kind of the, the David Brooks article from not for, from a while back that kind of made that argument. And I wanted to get your your thoughts on that sort of line of reasoning. I would argue that that line of reasoning is um, not based in reality. And remember, of course, that I think many people look at me and say liberal elite. I live in the country in a red town. So the the answer to that, I think, is once again, the importance of narrative. But that's certainly the narrative that people have heard. And you saw people like Pat Buchanan Writing that narrative, Pat Buchanan, of course, is a speechwriter first for Goldwater, and then he becomes an aide and a speechwriter for Nixon. And he says, we can turn people against the liberal elites. And I'm paraphrasing. That's not exactly what it says, but it's actually available on the Internet in a memo that he writes to Nixon saying, you know, we can meld people behind us by getting them to resent those who are trying to use the federal government to invest in in intercity inner city, uh, inner city uh, communities, for example. But the, the, the reason I say that's not reality-based is that, in fact, this argument that the United States is spending way too much money on social problems, for example, flies directly in the face of the fact that discretionary spending in the United States has fallen more than 40% over the last 50 years as a percentage of our GDP. More than 40%. So the question is, where has that money gone? You know, where, where is that, that money that in the past we would have put toward this kind of social programs that we're not doing now? And the answer to that is it's pretty clear that the real cuts to our, our budget and the real reason that we're in the red in so many ways in our annual budget are the Trump tax cuts and before that the George W. Bush tax cuts that have dramatically put money in the pockets of people at the very top of society. And, and in fact, you know, if you look at the, the distribution of income since 1981, between 1933 and 1981, we had what economists call the Great Compression when the, the extremes of income and wealth really compressed. So there wasn't a huge difference between people at the bottom and people at the top. After 1981, we get what economists call the great divergence in which, once again, we have the vast majority of the wealth really being concentrated at the very top to the point where right now, for example, we have three people in America who have as much wealth as the bottom 60 percent. I checked those numbers just yesterday. So the reality is that our political system since 1980 has, in fact, created uh, it's really hollowed out the middle class, but that Hollowing out of the middle class is not because people are forcing societal change. It's because of, in my in in my view, it's because of the 
the laws that have concentrated wealth at the top of the scale. And when that happens, and this is also a truism in American history, when wealth is more evenly distributed, when people feel like they can feed their kids, they're much more likely to be willing to spread that wealth around to say, sure, we're happy to make sure that other people have access to schooling, for example, or have access to decent jobs. It's when they start to feel that their own lives are constricted that they turn against their neighbors. And the people they turn against are almost always people of color, Black Americans, and now women. So to my mind, what comes first is the economy, and what comes second is uh, the, the cultural issues that are now really being exploited by people on the right who don't want to take on the economic issues. And, and as a former piece of, another piece of support for that argument, I will point out that if you think about America in the 1920s, we have a nascent fascist movement, and it's a fascist movement that's strong enough that it could get people to fill Madison Square Garden for a fascist rally on George Washington's birthday. By 1945, we have the rise of people like Frank Sinatra saying, hey, we can't discriminate against people based on religion, which is, of course, one of the things that the American KKK in the 1920s was concerned about was Catholicism and Judaism. Um, we, we can't discriminate based on religion. And by the 1950s, we have Superman, a very popular cartoon, talking to high school students about how if everybody says, if anybody ever says that you shouldn't welcome different people in your high school, remember, that's un-American. We're made up of all sorts of different people in this country. So the, that change, that extraordinary change happened far more quickly than we're talking about here. And it was one that was inspired by the way people were looking at the war, by the rise of the liberal consensus, by the government and lawmakers getting behind that idea in the same way that we had the opposite happening between 1980 and the present. Wow. I, this is deeply frustrating because in that in that comment, there there are probably about a dozen questions that went into my head and we're nearing the end of our time. So, oh, gosh. But but let me let me try to pull this together. Um, you know, in thinking about all this, let's, let's say somebody accepts essentially all the arguments in your book and says, you know what? Yes, Donald Trump is. Uh, we we are teetering on the brink of authoritarianism, in, in the and Donald Trump is kind of its face at this point. I think of an argument that my, my co-host on the show Jay often makes, and he's definitely not a fan of Donald Trump. But his point is that he doesn't see the real threat to democracy. His his argument is essentially the system worked. Trump lost basically all of his legal challenges about the election, and it really wasn't even close. Even Trump judges were ruling against him left and right. Now he's got these all of these indictments, and even if he isn't convicted, it doesn't look necessarily all that great for him uh, in 2024. And so someone like Jay, and I think a lot of folks look at it and say, yeah, you know, uh, Donald Trump was just this weird kind of blip, but the system, generally speaking, self-corrects, and it's probably going to self-correct this time, and we don't really need to get that worked up over it. Well, what do you think about that? I think I hope they're right, but <laughs> uh, it's important to remember that since January 6th, uh, one of the things that, that um, Trump's people did very well was they packed state Republican parties with their own people. So in a number of crucial states, you see the hollowing out of the electoral system and its replacement with MAGA Republicans. 
So, so I would agree with your Jay in that I, I don't actually think that that group of people is anywhere near a majority. I think they're actually quite a small minority. But what they have done is they've seized nodes of power. And in those nodes of power, they have uh, managed, for example, to take over the, the, the counting of electoral votes in certain places, things like that. And that's what concerns me, not that they're going to win a free and fair vote, because in a free and fair vote, they wouldn't win. What concerns me is that they have managed to pack crucial places in such a way that they're going to be able to leverage their minority in such a way that they override the majority. And, and just as an example, let's look at Wisconsin and Janet Protasiewicz there, who was elected in April to sit on the state Supreme Court by 11 points, which in Wisconsin is just astonishing. Usually elections there are decided between a half a point and a point. So by 11 points, voters put her on the state Supreme Court where she has promised to listen to, to arguments about the congressional districting of Wisconsin, which is one of the most gerrymandered in the country and where despite the fact that Democrats routinely win statewide elections for senator, for example, and for governor, they and, and often win a majority for the, the House of Representatives. In fact, they hold less than just uh, just less than a third. Of, I'm sorry, just more than a third of the seats in that House simply because of the gerrymandering in that district. And Republicans are threatening right now to impeach Protasiewicz, even though she's never heard a case um, with the argument, which has been thrown out by a state ethics board, that by saying she thought the maps were unfair, which every observer has said they are, that she should recuse herself from getting to have a vote on those, even though 11, she won by 11 points. And the trick to that is that if she is impeached, even if she is later um, uh, exonerated, she won't be able to sit on cases while she is being impeached so or while she is under impeachment. So that's a case where the manipulation of the system gives this minority power that it has not earned in a democracy. And that's one of the reasons that it seems to be important for people to focus not on Donald Trump right now. I actually will quietly say I share the belief that he probably will not end up being the nominee, although, you know, come back at me in 14 months and laugh at me with that one. But I think the, the movement that he represents is very much alive and very dangerous. And all you have to do is look at the Transition Project 2025 document, a thousand pages on how uh, a, a Christian nationalist can take over our system, even representing only a minority to get rid of our democracy and make sure we have to adhere to their own Christian, in, in quotation marks there, vision of what a society should be to see how dangerous we are at a place in preserving our democracy. Wow. I, I guess the last question that I have for you is, it seems to me that there are at least two, probably more than this, but I see two distinct paths forward. One being that this authoritarian moment is just that, and Trump fades from the scene, and some of the energy with that fades from the scene, the opportunistic politicians who kind of latched on to this. And it's sort of, we, we end up with the sort of the party of Mitt Romney or something like that, right? Uh, but the other op option, of course, the other possibility is that it's not just Donald Trump, and this is a time kind of 
really getting into are really spring a popular discontent, and it takes it to a level that maybe we've just last seen in the American Civil War. And, and obviously, that's not the outcome I think most people want. There are some people who are spoiling for that kind of a fight. Uh, which which one of these things do you think is more likely? I mean, I, what are your reasons for optimism here? I, I always like to try to close on an optimistic note if I can. I actually have a lot of reasons for optimism. Some are specific and some are general. The specific ones and the most specific one with reference to the Civil War is that the reason that the South left the Civil War was because they did it really quickly. So remember that Lincoln is elected in November of 1860, right before the Christmas season. And in South Carolina, the legislature is still meeting. It was the only state at the time that found its electors from the legislature, didn't go to a popular vote. So they were there to, they were actually in session. They hear Lincoln has been elected and they are in session. They decide they're going to secede from the union. It all happens, bang, 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 way before Lincoln even takes office. He's not going to take office until March 4th. So the Confederacy manages to organize itself really quickly. And as I say, over the Christmas season, and that matters because in the South, they're having Christmas parties all the time and people are drinking a lot of punch and they're wearing fancy clothes and they're saying, hey, we could start our own government. By spring, by April, that seems to be falling apart. And it seems like people are getting ready to plant again. And maybe this wasn't such a great idea. And Lincoln's not really doing very much. And maybe it would be okay to go ahead and see how this plays out. And one of the reasons we get the firing on Fort Sumter in mid-April is because the Confederacy recognizes that pretty soon everyone's just going to be laughing at them. So moving quickly really matters. And think about January 6th. That was the moment. January 6th was the moment in which it seemed like everything could go south in a hurry. And believe me, it keeps me up at night when I think of what would have happened had, for example, counter-protesters showed up and started fighting. If, for example, um, Trump had been able to call in troops, had been able to use the Insurrection Act as apparently he wanted to do. Imagine what would have happened if people had gotten into the Capitol and had, in fact, God forbid, hurt Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. What would have happened if we'd lost all those people? How would we have regrouped from that? Horrible things to think about. And yet they didn't happen. Now we're more than two years down the road. More than a thousand people have been uh, charged for their participation in January 6th. One of the key ringleaders is under, is it 91 different counts of indictment? That moment, that particular moment, that moment that had to be seized quickly has passed. And now people are stepping back and going, hey, let's take a deep breath. Let's think about this. And you can see the, in the increasing violence on the right, this sense that you know, that's their only option now. They no longer have somebody behind them in the White House. So that initial moment has passed. And so that idea that it's going to happen once again in that sort of a way, I, I just don't think is realistic because the speed really mattered and the moment passed. That being said, the other reason, and I'm going a little bit broader here that I'm optimistic, is that we've been here before. And we've been here before uh, and Americans have reclaimed their democracy. And one of the things that we don't talk about enough, and you and I didn't talk about this, is that we really do have a changing of the guard happening. We really do have a new population coming up, and it's a new population for whom the arguments about socialism and about race and about gender have extraordinarily different meanings than they did for my generation, if they have any meaning at all. So 
So their voices are going to matter a lot. And that's going to matter in things like recently at the G20, the African Union got a seat at the G20. That's a game changer. It's not the, the end game, but it's a game changer because if you think about the period after World War II, when in fact the, the advanced Western nations sort of announced what was going to happen and told the global South it was welcome to come along. Now, in fact, we have increasing focus on the global South, increasing focus on the Indo-Pacific. And now the African Union, 55 countries on the continent of Africa, actually having a seat at the G20, which in many ways, because of that, is now the G21. That really matters. So we've got a new generation and we have this legacy of people reclaiming democracy. But finally, I'm optimistic because I believe in people. And I believe at the end of the day, people want to determine their own fates. And the way that I believe that is most likely to happen is in a democracy, a place where we do have the right to be treated equally before the law, and we do have a right to have a say in our government. And I think at the end of the day, Americans will take a look at the options before us and say, do I want to live in a Christian nationalist country? No. I want to be able to make my own decisions about where I will worship, my own decisions about how I will work, my own decisions about my health, and that at the end of the day, they will vote to not only preserve our democracy, but take it to a new, more inclusive level than it's ever had before. Well, on that optimistic note, I, I think we'll close again. The book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. I Highly recommend it. And Heather Cox Richardson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, we hope you'll consider becoming one. When you become a supporter, you get all sorts of good stuff like ad-free versions of all our episodes, the full-length supporter-exclusive midweek show, access to our Politics Guys Discord group, and even the opportunity to join in and comment in real time as we record the show. To check it all out, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you'd like to support us on Venmo, we're at politicsguys, or you can support us through PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that full-length midweek show, but you're not in a position to financially support the podcast right now, that's totally not a problem. Just email me, a mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with that. And whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use, and share episodes on social media. We love hearing from listeners, and there are lots of ways to get in touch with us. You can send us an email, mail at politicsguys.com. There's that Discord channel for supporters, and we're also on Facebook and X. You'll find links in the show notes. And finally, a very special thanks to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.